Father in heaven, by grace we pray that you will enable us to preach, to hear your gospel. May it be the very thing on our lips even when we die. And so, Father, I pray that now I trust alive we are, that we'll hear this word, that you'll work it in us, and that you'll be glorified by it, and that you will grant to us boldness to be witnesses of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to Acts in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I want to read uh, verses 13 to 31 please. Acts in chapter 4. Hear the word of God. Acts 4.13 Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more uh, to anyone in this name. So they called them uh, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and when they had further threatened them they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old when they were released they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them and when they heard it they lifted their voices together to God and said Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with Boldness. Now what I want to do this morning, if God will help me, is to get to this prayer that begins in the middle of verse 24 and to think about that. But to get there, let's build like this. Remember that the apostles of Jesus were told by Jesus that they would be his witnesses. 
He didn't command them to be his witnesses per se. He simply told them that they would be. That would be their identity. Indeed, it seems that that is the very identity of all the believers in Jesus who come after them. It isn't a command. It's an identity. He says, I want you to be, you will be my witnesses. In fact, my spirit will make certain of that because my spirit will come upon you. And when my spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They saw that sort of in capsule form on the day of Pentecost, because on that day, they were in fact witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Because there were people in Jerusalem gathered from all over the place, and God gave them the ability to speak in languages that they hadn't learned, so they could speak directly into the hearts of these people from all over the place. And then Peter explained what that meant, that the prophet Joel had prophesied this, had said this was to be, and all of this was because the Messiah had come and he was Jesus, whom they had killed, but God had raised from the dead and therefore exalted in the heavens and had made both Lord and Christ, that is the sovereign one over all things, and the Savior, both Lord and Christ. And he said now to receive him, and the benefits that are in him, forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit, repent, be baptized, repent, turn away from your sins, turn to Christ, believe in him, trust in him, identify with him, and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the community in the Spirit then was formed, it was developed, because when people come to faith in Christ, are reconciled to God, they're also reconciled with one another. So these believers came together in a community together, a community in the Spirit, a community of believers in Jesus. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship that is love for one another. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread that is eating meals together in fellowship, but also that sacred meal of coming together and sharing the body, the blood of Jesus the very presence of Jesus coming together, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And the scripture also then says, Luke provides for us, that many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And one of those signs and wonders is the healing of a man who had been lame from birth and now was in his 40s. He was well known in the community, it seems, because he was a beggar by a gate that led into the temple. And you remember that Peter and John, in going to the temple to pray, gazed upon this man, the Spirit of God gave them insight into the circumstance, the situation, the timing, and they commanded this man in the name of Jesus, didn't pray for him, didn't ask him if he wanted to be healed, just simply commanded him in the name of Jesus. They had that authorization from Jesus, the authority of Jesus as apostles, and they commanded him to walk, and he did. And amazingly, the religious authorities were upset with them because of what had had happened. And so they arrested Peter and John. They arrested them for healing this man. But it wasn't so much for the healing of the man in the sense that, that, well, he can walk, so that's that. But it's why they did it and how they did it. They did it in the name of Jesus. Peter said it wasn't our power or piety. It was Jesus. He's alive. Remember, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. He's the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And so he's the one who did this because he's alive. And thus they were bearing testimony through this sign. The sign pointed away from itself. And it did a great job at that. Because no one was blaming the man. 
In fact, the man was, it was astonishing, but, but that wasn't the issue at this point. The issue at this point was Jesus. See, no matter what happens, no matter what sign, no matter what wonder, no matter what happens in that regard, the sign itself, even, we could say, the miracle itself is not to be the focus of attention. A sign always points away from itself. A sign is never its own destination. As we've said, if you're driving down the road and you see a sign to McDonald's and you're hungry, you don't stop and look at the sign. You go where the sign points. And where this sign pointed was to Jesus, and so it was working. Uh, He was the issue. And these religious authorities made up primarily of this party, this sect called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were an interesting group in contrast to the Pharisees who were the legalists. The the Sadducees also held tightly, at least they said, to the law, especially the law of Moses. They held tightly to the law of Moses, but amazingly, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. Now, how that could be so, and they held to the law, who knows? But that was their claim to fame. And so because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, they invested heavily in the here and now. And so they, they made uh, uh, treaties, if you will, um, in their own way, with the Romans so that they could be, have power. And so they ended up with great power uh, in, in, in Israel, among the Jewish people. In fact, uh, they controlled who was appointed to be high priest, which was the position High priest was the most important position. And so high priests by this time were generally Sadducees. And they were the wealthy ones. And they controlled things. They controlled not only the temple, but the temple police. And this became the highest authority, if you will. And and the Sanhedrin, which was the the governing body of Israel in a sense, um, was made up, not exclusively but heavily of Sadducees. And so when Peter and John begin preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, you can see that that cuts right at them because they didn't believe in resurrection. And if this Jesus is resurrected, then what does that say about what they're teaching the people? And Jesus had been a threat to them anyway. Uh, Jesus didn't pay a great deal of attention, interestingly enough, to the Sadducees, only some towards the end, mostly the Pharisees. But, but the Sadducees were, were highly affected by Jesus because, you see, he preached as one with authority. And people began to, 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 to take their allegiance away from the Sadducees and their authority and place it upon Jesus and his authority. Obviously, he had great power. He claimed to be the very, this power was the very power of God. And now, to think that there would be another king in Israel which would really damage the relationship between the Sadducees and Caesar, to say that there is another king among us other than, would put them in great peril, in their position in great peril. So they had to get rid of this one, Jesus. And so he was killed. But now if he's raised from the dead, that ruins everything. I mean, it ruins the fact that there's no resurrection from the dead, which is their primary teaching. Then it ruins their relationship with the Romans. Then it ruins uh, their authority among the people, and they th- so they have nothing at all. And so somehow they have to squelch this power of Jesus. Now, it's very interesting to me that the one thing they didn't do is to say to Peter and John, 
Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead because his body's in the tomb over there. That's all they would have had to do. All they would have had to do was to go and get the body of Jesus. But they knew it wasn't there, and they knew it wasn't there because they, the very temple police, had placed a guard around the tomb of Jesus because they had heard that he had said that in the third day he would rise. And so they placed a group of soldiers, temple police, right there by the tomb. And these were a very, this was a special forces group. They knew the penalty for, 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 for getting broken into was their own death. And there they were. But then after Jesus had risen, they saw what had happened. There was an earthquake there. The angel came. They freaked. They were like dead men, the scripture says. And so they went to the chief priest and they said, here's what happened. And the chief priest, rather than killing them, says, here's some money. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to spread the word. The disciples stole the body of Jesus. And now here they are faced. What are they going to do? The disciples now claiming that Jesus has risen. And you notice they never raised that point. They never raised the point of, well, no, no, you really have the body. You really stole the body. They don't bring that up because at this moment, that would have been a rather silly argument because here was a man who had never walked, was leaping, and all in the name of Jesus. What would they do? Well, all they could hope for at that point in time as they gathered together was to be able to tell the disciples that, in fact, they couldn't speak any longer in the name of Jesus. Now, they were amazed. They were amazed at, 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 at this man walking. And they were amazed at the disciples of Jesus because they said they were uneducated, just common men. Now, you and I don't believe that. It's not that we don't believe the Bible. It's just that somehow in our minds, we think Peter and John are different than us. But you know what? They weren't. In fact, we are much better educated than they were. We are much, most of us, in our culture, at a place in society, if we want to stratify by classes, in classes higher than Peter and John. So I don't know what picture you have in your mind of Peter and John, but they're, they're very common Folk, very common men, uneducated men. And yet, the power of God seemed to flow through them. And that was amazing to them. But then they took notice that they had been with Jesus. Now, in a sense, all that meant was, oh yeah, these, they really had been with Jesus. But I think there's something a little deeper than that. I'm not going to deal with it today. But something a little deeper than that, thinking, and the reason we know, we remember at this moment in time that they'd been with Jesus is because they're doing stuff Jesus did. Let me just plant this in you. Anybody ever say of you, oh yeah, he's been with Jesus. She's been with Jesus. What about you? What about me? Would give anybody the indication that we had been with Jesus. Now, it can't be that we're raising people who were uh, lame to walk. Uh, Didn't even happen often in the scripture didn't happen often in the life of Peter and John. But what is there? What would it be? Kindness? Compassion? Understanding? Graciousness? Mercy? Justice? 
What would it be? Anyway, they, they recognize that these men have been with Jesus since they come to them in hopes that they can warn them sufficiently, threaten them sufficiently. Don't you know they would threaten them with imprisonment? They had that power. Don't you know they could threaten them for being stoned as blasphemers as they did with Stephen? Don't you know they could appeal to the authorities in various ways to get them killed? Don't you know that was the threat that was coming to them? And they were real threats, honest threats. And don't you know Peter and John, just regular guys, would hear those threats? They had probably families. We know Peter had a mother-in-law at least. Jesus healed her. We don't know about their families. It's not discussed. But they had friends. They had family, no doubt. People who cared about them. They had thoughts about how we're going to make a living that it wasn't quite clear that they were going to be the great apostles at that point and then make their living doing that who knew what they were going to do but all those thoughts come through their mind just like they would you and me there were threats and so they said sorry and they stood before the highest tribunal they stood before the greatest earthly authority that they would know and said we're not going to obey you. That would be the equivalent for us as treason. We're not going to obey you. You've given us a direct command. We're not going to obey you because we can't because there's a higher authority, God himself. So they gathered themselves after they were released with all of these threats. They gathered themselves after they were released and they go back, their instinct, they go back to their friends. They go back to the fellowship. They're committed to the fellowship. They're devoted to the fellowship. Where else would they go? They, they can't simply go home. They go back to the fellowship because no doubt the fellowship knows what's happening and is gathered together. And they come together and they simply report what the chief priests have, have, have told them. And we don't know everything that went on in that report. We don't know everything. But we do know what Luke wants us to know is that they turned to God to pray. And that is significant. It's significant because we know that, that regardless of what counsel they may have given them, regardless of what discussions may have been going on, what Luke wants us to know is when this kind of crisis happens, we ought to pray. When we reach a crisis, we ought to pray. Because no matter what counsel we have, no matter what wisdom we have, none of it's worth anything unless God is in it, unless God is there. And praying is a way in which, the way in which we, we express our dependence upon him. To where we say our wisdom is insufficient, our counsel is insufficient, our, our understanding is insufficient, our strength is insufficient. God, we need to go to you, that you would enable us, that you would help us. And so, so, so here it is, casting their dependence upon God. Now, this is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. As we read through, we'll find many occasions where prayer is mentioned. We'll read through uh, a little splurt of a prayer or a prayer request or that kind of thing we might call it. But this is the longest prayer recorded in the book of Acts. And I don't know why Luke didn't record the others. My suspicion is, and it's only that, my suspicion is that they're all like this. My suspicion is, he said, oh yeah, I already told him about how to pray. Uh, about these things. So let me just mention that they pray. That'll cue in their head when they're in chapter 13 or chapter 19 or whatever chapter it is, that this is how witnesses of Jesus pray. You'll notice that the prayer does not begin with their situation nor their need. This prayer encompasses six verses. Four and a half of those verses are about God. One and a half of those verses is about their need. 
And they begin not with their need, but with God. But, but notice their, what they pray for. It, it begins in, in, in uh, verse 29. Uh, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your services, serv- servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So basically what they're praying for is that God will grant to them precisely what got them in trouble in the first place. They're praying that God would enable them to continue to be bold. That's what got them in trouble in the first place. Verse 13 says, they saw their boldness. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. And the second big thing that got them in trouble was healing this man in the name of Jesus. And so they said, God, this is what we need. This is what we desire for you to do. Enable us to be bold and perform many signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. They didn't pray, God, um, could you protect us? They didn't pray, God, uh, could you keep us safe? God, could you give us peace? God, could... Could you get us out of here? God, could you change the minds of those who have threatened us? Not that any of that would be necessarily bad to pray. But, but that's not what's recorded here. That's not what we're supposed to take notice of. They prayed as witnesses of Jesus. Knowing that what was most important is that that witness would continue. Period. And you get the sense that in the midst of that, they would know their own weakness. God, if we're weak anywhere, it's that we might become unbold. We might become less courageous. We might become less open about these things in the midst of these threats. So grant to us boldness in God. We might shy away from opportunities when you tell us by your spirit that you're going to perform a miracle in the name of Jesus. We we might shy away from that. So we don't want to do that knowing our own hearts. So, So please continue to do that. I want to go on record now, God, before you, and ask that that we'd never pass up an opportunity to to heal, to to, to see you at work in the name of Jesus, no matter what the threat is, no matter what could come of us. So that's where they are. Now the question is, how did they get there? My suspicion is, and this is certainly true in my own life, that if I begin with my need, I don't always pray as I ought. They began with God. They began setting their gaze upon him. They began putting everything right. I mentioned a couple of Wednesday nights ago when I was in Colorado to do the funeral of, uh, of this friend of mine who, who died. I met a, a man, actually, who I was surprised to see because the last time I had seen him, he wasn't a man. Uh, he was a boy. And uh, he was, uh, uh, now had children of his own. Uh, since I've been gone from that church 18 years, uh, he was probably about 12 or 13 years old when I, when I left there. And um, he said to me, um, amazingly, uh, he, said, uh, he said, he began to rehearse sermons that I had preached when he was a kid. And he says, this is what I'm teaching my children that you taught your children because I had mentioned it once in the sermon, and I probably mentioned it here. But when crisis would happen in our family, and, and our kids would come running to dad, I would say, let's stop, as long as there weren't any bleeding. I'd take care of that first. But um, let's stop. Where's the father? And the answer was, in heaven. All right, 
Where's Jesus? The answer was, he's still on the throne. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's within us. And then I'd go, whew. Okay, now that we know that, what's the issue? What's the problem here? How are we going to walk through this? But I wanted to set our gaze. And that's an old Sesame Street routine. You know, there was, a, there was a, a little piece in Sesame Street when my kids were little and when I was watching it, or at least when I could get away with watching it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, and it, was a, it was a little piece on perspectives and, uh, and how you get the right perspective. And, and they, would, they would show uh, a, a, a train coming at you real big. And then they'd put you in an airplane and the train would look so little. And the, the little song that went with it, the chorus was, uh, that's about the size. It's where you put your eyes. That's about the size of it. Meaning, it's the perspective. It's where you put your eyes. The thing that makes a mountain out of a molehill. You know what a molehill is? You see this field and the little moles are there and the little mound of dirt goes up. Not very big in the ground. But if you would lay down on your stomach, right in front of that molehill, this far away from it, it would look like a mountain. But if you would get up and back away and see it in its right perspective, it's just a molehill. And you see, once we place our gaze upon God, we need only give a glance at the problem before us. And that's what they knew, you see. Now, again, this is how the saints have Always prayed, for instance, in Second Kings, in verse 19, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had received a threat and received a letter um, from, an embass- from, from a messenger, uh, from a commander of the Assyrians, whose name was Sennacherib, and Sennacherib was terribly powerful. And he basically had gone and said to the king of Judah, I'm going to take all of your lands, and he had begun doing that, And so Hezekiah, even the great king Hezekiah, the faithful king Hezekiah, paid him tribute. He took took much of the gold from the temple treasury and even off the temple doors, and he sent to Sennacherib in hopes that that would pacify him. But it didn't. And Sennacherib came with a sort of a a, a scorning letter to him saying, Ha! You think this is going to stop me? And he pronounced to the people of Judah, You think this is going to stop me? You think trusting even in your God is going to stop me? I'm going to come and I'm going to take all your city. I'm going to take all of your land. And so here's how Hezekiah prayed. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. It was his gaze. It was where he put his eyes. And he put his eyes upon God. Now, Sennacherib must have looked huge. But when you put him next to God, who is enthroned, who is the God of all the kingdoms of the earth... Even the God of the Assyrians, the God of Sennacherib, then you begin to think, all right, I guess he's not that big. There's one who's bigger than he, my favorite, Jehoshaphat, in Second Chronicles, in chapter 20. 
There he is, Jehoshaphat. He's with Israelites, but it appears as if his main army is gone. And he looks in the four corners around him and he sees enemies on everyone about to pounce and descend upon him. And in Second Chronicles in chapter 20 and verse 3, we read this. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. That simply means he was a reasonable man. Right? He looked at the situation. He looked at his resources. He looked at himself. And he said, they're stronger than we are. They're going to kill us. That was a reasonable thought, given what he saw. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to help from the Lord, assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In other words, every one of those kingdoms, God, you rule over. You're sovereign over them. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And, have, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, the judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So he goes through all of that, and he sets his gaze. Okay, God, I know who you are. I know who we are in you. Okay, now, God, look around. There's enemies around us. And then he ends this prayer uh, with a rhyme, actually, at least in English. Uh, so that helps us to understand, uh, remember it. The end of verse 12, he says, We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Wow. Now, notice, his eyes weren't upon the enemies. If his eyes had been upon the enemies, what would he have done? But his eyes were upon God. So the prophet comes to Jehoshaphat and says, Don't worry, the battle's not yours, it's God's. Now tomorrow, go up. And if I were Jehoshaphat, I said, Listen, the battle's God's, let him do it. Uh, but that's not how God does it. And so, uh, he says, Tomorrow you go up. And what I want you to do when you go up tomorrow, because God is with you, is I want you to sing. I want you to take the choir. I want you to sing. And then the scripture says something amazing. I don't know what verse it is because I just turned away from Second Chronicles. But in some versions it says, They rose early the next morning and went up. Now if they arose early the next morning, it must have been that they went to sleep. And how could they go to sleep with enemies around them? Only if their eyes were on God. And not upon the enemies. So they went up the next day. And they sang and the enemies defeated themselves. No surprise. But no surprise too that this is how he was going to pray. Because someone named Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Set your gaze. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you began randomly, give us this day our daily bread, and you didn't know to whom you were praying, would you have any confidence that your daily bread would come? But if he's your father, who is in heaven, 
the one whose name is holy, who rules over his kingdom on earth as he does in heaven, then to pray, I have a need. Doesn't that make a difference? And so they began to pray, Sovereign Lord. Now that little expression, Sovereign Lord, is a rather unique one in the New Testament. It's used of God only in a couple of occasions. It's not the normal word for Lord. It's one word, and my translation translates it, Sovereign Lord. But it's, in Greek, it's a despotes, from which we get our word despot. Now, when we think of a despot, we think of a tyrant or an oppressor. But generically, it just simply means absolute ruler, absolute authority. There is none who can thwart you. There is none who can come against you. There is none who can, who can defeat you. In fact, you're the one who rules and controls everything. And so their first thought was, you're the ruler over everything. You're the ruler over creation. You're the creator. You're the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. So, okay, we've got these threats from the highest authority that we know, but God is the maker of everything. God is supreme over everything. God is supreme over the Sanhedrin. He's supreme over the Sadducees. He's supreme over the high priest. He's supreme over the temple police. So no matter what they have, they, they've, they've, they've said to us, they can't do anything to us without God's decree, without God ordaining it. Because he's sovereign over them. So if they come against us, they come against us at God's decree. But God is with us. And then he goes on to say this. Who, this sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes the first two verses of Psalm 2, which is a, a psalm that no doubt was true in David's life. No doubt true in the life of ancient Israel that the, the nations were raging against David, na- raging against Israel. And, and so David would pray, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set, the, set themselves and the, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. Now turn quickly, I know we're running out of time, but turn quickly to Psalm in chapter 2. Because no doubt if they quoted the first two verses, they were attitudinally, that is, they had in their minds their attitude. This whole psalm, they knew its point. So Psalm 2 just begins, as, as I've read the first two verses. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And you think, that doesn't sound very nice of God. But what it tells us of God is that when a nation rages against him, it's nothing. It might be the strongest nation on the face of the earth. But that nation is nothing at all to the God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. To the God who is sovereign Lord over all things. And so the posture of God isn't nervousness. It isn't anxiety. It isn't, oh no, they're upset. He just simply says, Jill, you can't hurt me. You can't stop what I'm doing. You can't stop my people. You can't ultimately hurt them. You really can't. So he laughs. And then, verse 8, 
says, ask of me. Now, by the time of Jesus, and even in the time of David, perhaps, but certainly by the time of Jesus, you can read this in all the best Jewish commentaries on Psalm 2, even, but this is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of the anointed one who's to come. And notice what's true. He says, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you're my son. Today I have begotten you. Who's that sound like? And then he says to the son whom he's begotten, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions. And so here's this group of people who've been threatened by the highest authority that they know and they're praying to the sovereign Lord who is the absolute ruler over all things, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in it. And now he's saying, these threats are coming to you, but God laughs at that because he's given to this risen Jesus the nations. They're his. And so you're, they're getting all of this in perspective. Okay. And then goes on like this, verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're saying everything that's happened had been predestined by God. Of course, he's the sovereign, he's the absolute. Now, I know that little P word makes everybody, some people, quite uncomfortable. But you've got to believe it. It's in the Bible. That God had predestined the crucifixion of Jesus through Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the others. He predestined that. Now, we get hung up about that and we say, well, gosh, how can he, God predestined these things and hold Herod and Pontius Pilate responsible? I mean, weren't they just simply doing what they had to do because that's what God had set out for the course of history? And if God is the absolute sovereign one, how can he hold them responsible to all that? Sounds like a great Wednesday night topic. But uh, this didn't deter them at all in praying. It didn't deter them at all. In fact, it was a comfort to them to know this. Because if you have a God who isn't sovereign like that, then you have way more theological issues than if you have a God who is sovereign like that. So play with that a while and you'll... you'll, you'll Agree with me. Now, they realized that, that, so why should they worry? Their whole lives were not only part of the plan of God, but the hand of God. Notice how, how this is stated. It isn't that God just planned this and then said, well, this will happen because I just know it's going to happen. He was actually involved in all of this, not in the evil of it, because God isn't the author of evil, and God doesn't do evil. But it was his plan and his hand. And so they took great comfort to know that nothing was happening, neither the crucifixion of Jesus nor the threats that were coming to them was anything that God wasn't a part of and God didn't know about and God wasn't decreeing and God wasn't allowing to come to any. And so then they simply said, now God look upon their threats. Sometimes we spend half the day describing things to God. Now that might be therapeutic to us, but it's not like God's taken notes Oh, who didn't notice that? They said that? Holy cow. Oh, God wouldn't say holy cow. Now, got a whole other religion. We're going down the wrong road here. Now, what's the point? 
And the point is that God answered their prayer and the place shook and they went out with boldness. I know that probably none of us in this room are necessarily facing this kind of threat. So the question is, what's the threat to our witness? What's the threat for us being witnesses that Jesus is alive, the kingdom has come in him, and that there's forgiveness of sins and repentance in him, eternal life in him? What, what's the threat to us? What's going to keep us from doing that? What's coming against us? It seems bigger than anything we can handle. Is it loneliness? Is it a financial situation? Is it a relationship situation? Is it a health situation? What is it? Because there's crises happening in our lives all the time. And every time a crisis comes, the question is, where is the Father? Where is Jesus? Where is the Holy Spirit? Who is God? Who is the Sovereign Lord? Who is the one in control of all of this? And how then should I respond to this crisis? So what we have to do when we pray, first we have to pray. And we pray to this one who is the Sovereign Lord the absolute ruler, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in it. This very one who laughs at the greatest opposition that could ever come to us, whether it be a nation, a person, or cancer, or a market, or another relationship, or whatever that may happen to be. God says, that isn't bigger than me. And then we put that all in perspective, and we say, God, take a look at what's going on here. Give me boldness to witness of Christ. Because that's who I am. Whatever else you take away from me, whether you imprison me, whether you harm me, whether I have cancer, whether I don't have a job, whether I'm lonely, whether I'm alone, whether no matter what situation I find myself in, God, I am a witness of Christ. Give me boldness. Don't let this Take away that. You can only get there if your eyes are upon him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for me, for us, I pray that you would grant to us the grace to know who you are, to believe who you are, to put everything in perspective of who you are, and to know our weakness. But Father, granted we be bold. In our witness of you, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Give my apologies to your Sunday school class teachers when you go. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. Now when you say that, I want you to think of every crisis, I want you to think of your whole life, I want you to think of all the situations presently there. Right? I want to put them down here. And up here, I want you to put Jesus as the Lord. Okay? And then when you say Jesus is Lord, to understand all your issues, all of your situation, in light of that he's sovereign, that he's exalted, that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then say hallelujah, because that should relieve you.
not that your issues aren't big, not that they aren't difficult, not that they aren't hard. But remember the perspective. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to him. Who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work in us can be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.